Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Tonight on All In. So I've heard that Tucker Carlson has left Fox News. It's a curious news. What is this related to? One can only guess. New questions and new reporting on why Tucker Carlson was fired from Fox News. There is a huge difference between espousing conservative viewpoints and telling lies to the American public. Tonight, former Fox anchor Gretchen Carlson on what needs to happen for change at her former network. Plus, another shady real estate deal at the Supreme Court as the Chief Justice dismisses calls for oversight. Then, riveting testimony from the woman accusing Donald Trump of rape. What we learned from E. Jean Carroll's day on the witness stand. And Congresswoman Katie Porter on the MAGA vote to slash funding for Medicaid veterans, childcare, and more. But All In starts right now. Good evening from New York. I'm Chris Hayes. Tonight, the Supreme Court of the United States is under a cloud of scandal. It all started earlier this month when ProPublica revealed that conservative justice Clarence Thomas was accepting undisclosed gifts from a right-wing billionaire. Thomas accepted gifts including luxury vacations worth literally hundreds of thousands of dollars and this really, truly special painting from a man named Harlan Crow, who has, well, interests before the court, at least ideological ones. You can see him there on the right sitting next to Thomas. Crow also bought property from Thomas from what appears to have been above market value, including, get this, the house of the justice's mother, where she now lives rent-free with Crow as her landlord. But it doesn't end there. Just yesterday, we learned another conservative justice, Neil Gorsuch, has potential financial disclosure issues of his own. According to a new report in Politico, Gorsuch struggled for nearly two years to sell a Colorado property he partially owned. But just nine days after he was sworn in as Supreme Court justice in 2017, wouldn't you know it, he found a buyer. Not just any buyer, a guy named Brian Duffy, who is chief executive of one of the nation's largest law firms, which, of course, does extensive business before the Supreme Court. According to federal financial disclosure documents reviewed by Politico, Gorsuch made between $250,000 and $500,000 from the deal. But crucially, he did not disclose who the buyer was or that the buyer had business before the court. Heidi Prisbilla, national investigative correspondent Politico, broke this Gorsuch story and joins me now. Um, Heidi, let's set up just the basics of this transaction here, when it happened and what the conditions were. Right. This was in 2017, and a few months before Justice Gorsuch was sworn in, we were told that Brian Duffy, who is the head of Greenberg Trowig, made an initial offer on this home that Gorsuch had been trying to offload for about two years. It was then when The New York Times reported in March of that year, Chris, that Gorsuch was indeed uh, one of the co-owners. It was two months after that, in nine days after Gorsuch was sworn in, that he finally finds a buyer. That buyer happens to be the CEO of one of the biggest law firms with a pretty robust practice, Supreme Court practice, 
before before the court. So, uh, you know, I, I reached out when I saw that this happened, this timing. Was was this just one big coincidence or what exactly happened here? Uh, I did speak with Mr. Duffy. He told me that he did become aware of who the owner was throughout the course of this. Uh, but it's still unclear exactly when that happened. Like I said, there was this big New York Times story in March this then went through in May, so it was two months before that Gorsuch actually was identified as the owner of this property. And here's the problem, Chris. Uh, there's no problem here, technically. There's no violation. Uh, no laws were broken. And according to ethics experts, that's the problem, that this doesn't violate anything, that you could have a transaction like this take place with this timing and with someone with such interests before the court and have it be completely opaque. Yeah, so that's that's what's interesting to me. So this was, he didn't own this outright. It was a partnership, and there was some entity created to be the owner of that. That entity then sold it and then dispersed the profits to the people that were part of the partnership. And in dispersing them, it ceased to exist, basically. And so in a very, very technical level, he leaves the buyer blank because he just got the money from the partnership dispersing the money. And everything is officially by the book from the standards of, of what the disclosure requires. And yet we know nothing about the fact that one of the heads of the biggest law firm bought property for one of the Supreme Court justices. You broke it down really well. And here's what's going to surprise most American people is that there's nothing wrong with this because the Supreme Court is the only branch of the U.S. government uh, and actually stands in contrast to many of the higher courts in other Western countries in that there is no enforceable ethics code. We have that for the executive branch. We have it for Congress, not for the Supreme Court. This is becoming a red-hot issue now with the revelations about Justice Thomas, all the way going back to what happened with his wife and the text messages around the January insurrection, Chris, um, but now as well with these disclosure rules, because this type of an arrangement may have really been flagged by an ethics uh enforcer in those other branches of U.S. government. We don't have it in the Supreme Court. And for people who care about the integrity of the court, they say this is an example of why you would want to have that code, because then you wouldn't have these questions of disclosure and of what exactly happened with this transaction and why did it go down uh, around this, this particular timing and with these two particular parties uh, with with the head, head of a law firm here with so many cases that wound up going yeah. before the court. Yeah. In the, in the case of Harlan Crow, you know, the defenders, of the arrangement say, well, he wasn't the party in cases. There's one that he actually was kind of a party in. He had broad ideological interests before the court. In this case, it's just clear. I mean, Greenberg Traurig is a big litigator. They've had 12 cases before the Supreme Court since Gorsuch has sat on them. He's ruled in their favor eight of those 12 times. Although, you know, again, he's an ideological conservative. That would likely be the case. We don't know. In the absence of the real estate deal, the whole point of this stuff is to remove these perceptions of corruption and dependence, which, of course, we are stuck with because they've decided not to uh, do anything about their ethics. Heidi Prisbilla, great reporting. Thank you for sharing with us. As Heidi pointed out, um, it is not entirely clear if Justice Gorsuch actually violated any ethics or disclosure laws in the financial disclosures. It appears that he did not, right? That by sort of by the letter of the rule, he was uh, disclosing what he had to disclose. And in that sense, it's less cut and dry than what Justice Clarence Thomas has received from Harlan Crow, right, where he pretty clearly should have disclosed that and then just chose not to. But that's all the problem. I mean, 
Fundamentally, this is one third of the American federal government, one of the three branches. And American people absolutely have a right to know if nine of the most powerful judges in the country, the nine most powerful judges in the country, nine of the most powerful people in the country have financial ties in the past, ongoing, like a guy who is your mother's landlord that could cause, at the very least, the appearance of a conflict of interest. Right now, the justices regulate themselves when it comes to ethics. Nice work if you can get it. Even though, you know, judges being bribed is one of the, like, central canonical acts of corruption that you look out for in a corrupt state. Happens all throughout history and all around the world all the time, right? You don't want judges to get bribed. People try to bribe them all the time. And in corrupt societies and corrupt governments, they do get bribed. So there's a reason to be vigilant, (laughs) And it is perfectly legitimate as an oversight undertaking for one of the other branches of government to make sure that they're vigilant on this. That, of course, is why the Senate Judiciary Committee wants to hear from Chief Justice John Roberts. Last week, committee chair Dick Durbin sent Justice Roberts a letter requesting either his testimony or the testimony of a fellow justice, noting, quote, there is ample precedent for sitting justices of the Supreme Court to testify before Congress, including regarding ethics. He's right. Back in 2011, then-Justices Stephen Breyer and Anthony Scalia, you see them there, testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee on the role of the court in American life, including questions of ethics. I think there's several different things. I I think one is uh, uh, what money you can take or can't take, for the most part, what the reporting requirements and and some of the general ethics requirements that are uh, you can't sit in cases. Those are statutory, and I think they bind us, period. I've always thought so. The real key to uh, the distinctiveness of America is the structure of our government. One part of it, of course, is the independence of the judiciary. But there's, there's, there's a lot more. But Chief Justice John Roberts just doesn't feel like he needs to testify. So yesterday, he responded to the Senate request with, if you'll forgive me for opining, an offensively dismissive letter where he attempts a half-hearted attempt to gussy up his defiant refusal to cooperate by citing past president. Except, guess this, all of the precedent he cites include examples of past chief justices cooperating with congressional investigations, testifying before Congress. He references Chief Justices William Howard Taft, Charles Evans Hughes, who, guess what, testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee. And William Rehnquist, who testified multiple times in the House. He then hand waves away their testimony as being about, quote, mundane topics. He also adds a bizarre non sequitur about presidents testifying before Congress, noting, quote, no president has ever testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee, and only three presidents, 1862, 1919, 1974, have testified before any congressional committee. Uh, Okay. But it's worth pointing out that despite wrapping himself in the lofty language of the judiciary and precedent, I am a judge, and let me see what precedent says. The only precedent he cites are chief justices actually doing it, and then he doesn't actually say anything else. Never makes an affirmative argument why he can't or won't testify. What's really left unsaid in the letter is basically a kind of constitutional hardball. The chief justice effectively argues, I'm not going to testify because you can't make me. What are you going to do? That's the question. What are Senate Democrats going to do about it?
Senator Sheldon Whitehouse is a Democrat of Rhode Island who serves on the Judiciary Committee and has been pushing for Supreme Court ethics reform for years, and he joins me now. Senator, perhaps I took more offense to this letter than I should have. Maybe I got too worked up about it. How did you receive the letter from the Chief Justice replying to your committee's invitation to testify? Well, two things stood out. The first was that he felt obliged to attach a document to his letter that was a five-page, I want to say, memorandum about judicial ethics that all nine justices had apparently signed as if that was going to solve the problem. And what was noticeable about that, one, clearly they're feeling some real pressure if they feel they have to put uh, an addendum like that onto the letter to tell the world uh, we take ethics seriously. And then unbelievably, the actual gap in their ethics is not that there's no ethics code. There is a judicial code of ethics. It's not that there aren't statutes. There are statutes. It's that they have no process for investigating or enforcing the code in the statutes as to themselves. And they don't even mention that problem, let alone cure it in all the pages of their memorandum. So, I mean, that's kind of send the associate back legal work coming from the chief justice of the Supreme Court. Well, it also seems to me there's a kind of deeper principle. There's two deeper principles. One is a principle uh, that is a cornerstone of the Anglo-American legal tradition, which is no man can be a judge in his own case. And in fact, that has been cited, if I'm not mistaken, by the chief justice himself in Supreme Court (laughs) decisions he's handed down. And yet this clearly seems to be the case here, that they are judges in their own case. We judge whether we violated ethics, which is, again, nice work if you can get it. I'm sure everyone would like that setup, but that seems insufficient on its face. Indefensible, I think, actually, when you look at every other uh, official in the federal government, all of the other judges who wear robes in the federal judiciary, nobody enjoys that kind of uh, impunity. And this is not some recent rule that you shouldn't be judged in your own case. It's so old, it's in Latin. Memo judex in sua causa. This goes way back. This is a core principle of justice that they are just flouting. Well, there's also a question of the remedy and what it would mean constitutionally, right? I mean, you have, I think, a a judicial ethics bill um, that, that, that you've written that would, that would attempt to redress some of this, right? Yeah. If I'm not mistaken, I, you know, when you hear that Scalia sound where he talks about the independence of the judiciary and there's a little preamble in, in Chief Justice's letter, if I recall correctly, where he sort of says the same thing, which seems to imply a kind of constitutional hardball, which is as a constitutional matter, we are independent and you can't regulate our ethics. Well, first of all, think about why it is that a court needs to be independent. A court needs to be independent so that it can be impartial. The real value here is impartial justice. And independence is a mechanism of assuring impartiality. Now, they're using their independence as a device to protect obvious partiality and to exempt themselves from ethics rules and statutes. So there's a kind of a contortionist quality to that argument. Let me ask you about the state of your committee. Um, This was a voluntary uh, invitation. 
But right now, uh, one of the Democratic senators on your committee, Dianne Feinstein of California, has taken ill. She is unable to be in Washington for committee votes. Uh, it means the Democrats don't have an outright majority on that Judiciary Committee. There's many people who think this is a bad situation. There's been calls on your colleague, Senator Feinstein, to resign uh, to the extent that she's unable to carry out her duties. Do you understand why people are making that call? Is it affecting the committee's work? Well, I think it's uh, slowing down some judges um, where there is a pure partisan vote because you have to use a device to discharge the judges uh, vote from the uh, Senate, from the committee up to the Senate. And it takes extra time. And then on other investigative questions, whether or not we have enough uh, votes for a subpoena is a different question that, too, ends up in the Senate if it's challenged. So. Um, it would be, I think, better and things would run more smoothly and will run more smoothly when Diane returns. Uh, but in the meantime, we're pushing forward. Um, we're continuing to do the investigation into the court's ethics shenanigans, and we're continuing to clear judges. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, who sits on the Senate Judiciary Committee, which just received a brush off from the Chief Justice. Thank you for joining us tonight. Coming up, new reporting on just why Tucker Carlson was fired by Fox News as Tucker himself breaks his silence the first time. We'll tell you what he had to say. And I'll be joined here by former Fox News host Gretchen Carlson right in the studio right after this. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Hey, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? Evangelical pastor and director of Vote Common Good, Doug Paget, on the rise of Christian nationalism and what's at stake in this year's election. We lack a story in this country about what our politics are supposed to achieve. And when we suggest to them that the common good can be your voting identity, rather than being Republican or being a Democrat or being fiscally this or that, big government or small government, but you care about the common good, people are like, oh yeah, that that I actually care about. That's this week on Why Is This Happening. Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and subscribe. It has now been two days since Fox News unceremoniously dumped their 8 p.m. host, Tucker Carlson. We just heard from him for the first time in a video posted to Twitter tonight. Carlson shared what he's learned from taking a whole 48 hours away from TV, not voluntarily. It didn't take any shots at Fox, only the mysterious forces that want to silence him. When honest people say what's true, calmly and without embarrassment, they become powerful. At the same time, the liars who've been trying to silence them shrink and they become weaker. We're not going to play the whole thing because really, who needs to hear it? But notably, Tucker never mentions his former employer by name. And he seems to have a good reason for that. Rolling Stone reports that Fox News executives have in their possession a dossier of alleged dirt on Tucker Carlson that they are ready to deploy should he attack the network in the wake of his departure. Sources say the file includes internal complaints regarding workplace conduct, disparaging comments about management and colleagues, allegations he created a toxic work environment. 
According to new reporting tonight from The New York Times, listen to this. On the eve of the Dominion defamation trial, Fox discovered new texts sent by Tucker, one of which was, quote, particularly offensive, adding to the concern at the top of the company. Now, we've heard some of these sorts of allegations directly from Tucker's former producer, Abby Grossberg, who worked for him, who appeared on this network yesterday to talk about the sexism lawsuit that she filed against Fox for a hostile workplace. Of course, there's a long history of toxicity that Grossberg describes at the network. Back in 2016, you might remember, host Gretchen Carlson sued longtime Fox CEO Roger Ailes for sexual harassment. That kicked off a cascade of similar accusations that ultimately led to Ailes' resignation. Now, Gretchen Carlson is speaking out about Tucker's firing, writing in an opinion piece to the Daily Beast. It is, quote, meaningless without real change at Fox News. And Gretchen Carlson, former Fox News anchor, who opened the floodgates in the fight to expose harassment at the network, joins me now, co-founder of the organization Lift Our Voices. Good to have you here. Thanks for having me, Chris. Well, what do you think about all this? <laughs> a lot's happened in the last couple of minutes. Um, first of all, let me be clear that there's no relation between Tucker Carlson and Gretchen Carlson. Oh, yeah, yes. <laughs> That's funny. I should have noted that in my copy, but yes, zero. <laughs> I get that all the time yes, on Twitter. An, an accident I'm, of... Yes, I'm very quick to say absolutely not. Um, look, I am not surprised at all of what has transpired here. But I think it's interesting that there's so much focus on what he may have said about executives. I actually think that the Abby Grossberg lawsuit and her claims of continued misogyny and sexual harassment at a network that says they've cleaned up their acts since my case, I actually think that that's paramount in this whole thing. I think that had a lot more to do with why he was fired than anything about Dominion. Well, and we should say that her, you know, um, her allegations are just sort of textbook. And I can't say those allegations are true. They're just allegations. She's filed a lawsuit. Um, are textbook hostile workplace allegations. Um, and they come on the heels. It's not just your case. I mean, I was going back through the records here. And there have been multiple, multiple lawsuits, often settled, sometimes involving talent, sometimes involving executives, over and over and over and over in that company around, specifically, an atmosphere of sexual harassment in a hostile workplace. Yes, but the interesting thing is, is that after my case and after the firing of Roger Ailes and so many other women came forward, Fox made a big point of saying that they had changed their culture. But I have two things to say about that. <laughs> the Abby Grossberg lawsuit right. and her claims apparently prove that's not the case. And number two is, if they have changed so dramatically, why do they continue to still silence me and not allow me to get out of my non-disclosure agreement, which I have demanded that they do so? I mean, if they've changed, then what are they nervous about with regard to having full transparency and me being able to own my own truth? You uh, settled with that with the company and signed a non-disclosure agreement in which you can't speak about your time there, right? And specifically about your case. Um, this has obviously been a tool that's been used, um, not just at Fox, but lots of places. And in fact, there's been a sort of push for um, some reforms to that in the wake of kind of the Me Too uh, movement. Well, thanks to our organization, Lift Our Voices, we've been spearheading that move. We passed two bipartisan federal bills last year, one to eradicate nondisclosure agreements for sexual misconduct, pre-dispute cases in the workplace. The other to eradicate something called forced arbitration clauses, which is the other way that you silence bad behavior at work. 
on the first day of work, you sign these clauses. You have no idea what you're signing. Then something bad happens to you five years later. And for all practical purposes, you're screwed because you've, you've signed already that you're going to go to these secret chambers to adjudicate your claims. Well, and as I think we're seeing, and again, I can't speak to whether Abby Grossberg's allegations are cr- true. Fox denies them. Um, the, uh, there, it's also key, and particularly at a place like, I mean, Fox is a repeat offender in this respect. There have been multiple settlements, multiple lawsuits. We're now in 2023 where we have another one. We have it on the heels of what is the largest defamation settlement, uh, or the second largest, well, the largest settlement in all time. What do you think about the reverberations of the Dominion lawsuit up on top of the reporting we have tonight that possibly texts that were discovered in the course of that lawsuit reportedly what the straw that broke the camel's back. I think they're all interrelated because had you not had this spectacular discovery of Dominion in unearthing all of these texts and much more information, you wouldn't then be giving more ammunition to Smartmatic and their case. You wouldn't then be giving more ammunition to Abby Grossberg and what she alleges happened, right? So they're all intertwined. So you could argue that the Murdochs finally said, you know, enough, because Tucker Carlson has his fingerprints in all of these different areas. I still think, though, that her case, because they said they've cleaned up culture there, I still think that that one supersedes anything else. Um, there, you know, the, the cable news is a weird business, but one of the things that, uh, that, that we know that folks at Fox is a matter of public record uh, are obsessed with are ratings. And they're totally obsessed with them uh, to the extent that they have these minute by minutes and they've got these, you know, folks who are sitting in editorial meetings telling them you got to do this because. It'll... And in fact, that was the origin. In If you listen to Dominion's theory of the case in that lawsuit that settled, it was the challenge that was coming from Newsmax and OAN in the aftermath of the election where they were going fully on the big lie. Fox was sort of one step in, one step out that kind of got Fox to go along with it. Well, Last night, <laughs> Newsmax did 5X their normal viewers. Yeah, but that happened before. I'm I mean, saying they're that, back in the same place that got them there. Right. So two full years later now, they have the same threat because people have alternatives, right? right? For the longest time, Fox was the only conservative outlet. Now you have OAN and Newsmax who apparently are going to go all in no pun intended, for um, being completely right-wing, right? And so the people who wanted to hear the rhetoric of Tucker Carlson are now going to go over to these outlets. But that was the fear that was placed before Fox two years ago. So they're back to the same place now. I mean, there's something perverse and fascinating about that, right? I mean, I think our intuitions are that um, monopoly is bad and competition's better. <laughs> right? Like competition's a good thing. There shouldn't just be one person selling shoes. There should be three people selling shoes. And in this case, when competition starts to ramp up, what do they compete towards? Exactly. But I also believe that if this was strictly about Dominion, that they would have gotten rid of more people. They may still. But why was it only Tucker Carlson, right? Because plenty of other hosts were talking about the same lies, and the executives knew about the lies and still allowed it to be on their air. In fact, there are other hosts in the Dominion filings who are more specifically being called out by the executives, who are more specifically, um, you know, seem to be endorsing. Maria Bartiromo is one example on Fox Business, who, who, who seems to both, we will say, in public and in private, <laughs> to be endorsing this theory. And nothing happened there. And what I call out in my op-ed is that if Fox really wants to have a genuine recommitment 
to journalism, albeit with a conservative point of view, but at least truths, Uh then they really have to clean house completely. Because what has typically happened at Fox is when you get rid of a Bill O'Reilly, you put a Tucker Carlson in there and they get even higher ratings, right? But right? the point is, like, why would they want, they don't want to do that. They want to make money. Right. I mean, the, the, so, so they, <laughs> they but, don't want to do but that. They, but they, they have, never wanted to but do that. But they have a business decision to make because I think there's been a complete shift in the old Fox and the Fox of the last five to seven years. I am skeptical on that. Well, in this one way right. about specific. There's less control. Specific. Roger Ailes is not controlling That's right. everything. Yes. That's right. Yes. And yes. one could argue. The horses are, are bucking against the ride. One could argue that it's, it's a rudderless ship. Yeah. And that is how we got to this position. One could also argue this would may not have happened under the old regime. I, that, I think, is an interesting one. Ailes, uh, for all of his prodigious faults, uh, <laughs> uh, had a keener sense of how to keep things out of the danger zones, like the $800 million defamation danger zone that they that they ended up with. Um, the op-ed you mentioned is in the uh, the, the Daily Beast. Um, it's titled, Firing Tucker is Meaningless Without Real Change at Fox News. Gretchen Carlson, great to have you here. Thanks, Thanks for so much. Uh, I want to go now to the, on the phone to Jim Rutenberg, who's a writer at large from New York Times, who helped break this new story about Tucker Carlson's text messages. Jim, uh, nice to have you on. Uh, wh- what did you learn in your reporting about this apparent trove of previously unknown texts, at least the executives? Well, Chris, thanks for having me. And what we're reporting tonight is that, uh, and this was surprising to us, that on the eve of trial, the Dominion trial, the Fox Board of Directors found out what was in these unredacted text messages and became incredibly concerned uh, I say I'm surprised because they had not seen it previously. Uh, this, uh, by the way, we also are reporting that some senior executives had not seen some of this unredacted material before. This is right on the eve of trial. The board moved to, to, to start toward a potential internal investigation of Tucker, but bringing in an outside firm to do it. And uh, that's right as they're negotiating settlement. Uh, and this sets the path toward Tucker's ouster, because the concern is that these redacted messages, should they ever become public, will be even more embarrassing than the copious amount of information that was already out and would lead to other exposure in perhaps other cases. Yeah, you, 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 there's a few lines. I don't have the piece uh, right in front of me, but there, there's one line where you say basically something along the lines of offensive, crude text, even over and above the racist comments he had made on air. And then there's another reference to like one specifically particularly offensive text that the Times has not seen, but executives saw. And this, there's a kind of like MacGuffin quality to this. Like there's some, you know, mystery box of like the most offensive stuff that, that is more offensive than the stuff you already know that this is, this is the, this is the story. Well, I got to say, I would I would love to be able to report what is in that <laughs> message, in so I get it. I get it. But all we can say, and, and believe me, reporting will continue apace, and I'm sure not at this news organization, but uh, we still thought we needed to report that much because this, this one email really upped the stakes for the board and some right. executives. So, I, I, you know, we'll try to figure out what was in it. But uh, that one email was was an extra kind of push on everything. 
what do you think the, I mean, there's been a bunch of different theories here. And again, one thing that I think just a level set here is that the, the place is run by a 92 year old media mogul who's, um, uh, you know, fired people for 60 years and thinks nothing of it. I mean, like, it could just be that the, you know, the boss was just sick of it and, and decided to, to can you, right? Well, yes and no, because because look at this, the Dominion case, okay? Tucker Carlson is not a major part of the substance of that case. Uh, Dominion was disputing or, or pointing to 20 defamatory statements. Only one of those statements took place right. uh, on Tucker's show. Yet, we've, we've been talking so much about Tucker throughout this whole case because his emails have produced so much more trouble. So right there... We're starting to get, if there's a cost-benefit analysis of how much trouble is Tucker Carlson worth, that's a big deal. And if you have future cases, now, okay, how profitable is he? So you see that Rupert Murdoch is a businessman who's about money. Um, can I say one other thing? You about can, all the, Well, thank you. Uh, all of these explanations, people, people are pointing to uh, as if there are different stories about what happened here. I think all of the reporting... Between, among all the news organizations, and none of it contradicts, it's not ca- contradicting itself. Right. I think we're putting together a picture of what happened, and there are a lot of things involved in it. We're writing about one thing, a major thing, but it's not the only thing. Tucker right. Carlson was becoming unaccountable. This is Rupert Murdoch. He expects accountability when he expects it, which isn't even that much. So he gives you a free hand, but Tucker Carlson went too far. All right, Jim Rutenberg, thank you so much for joining us on short notice with that breaking news. Still ahead, the woman who accused Donald Trump of sexual assault takes the stand today. A reporter who's in the courtroom joins me right here with all the details next. Today, writer E. Jean Carroll took the stand in a New York City courtroom and under oath testified, quote, I am here because Donald Trump raped me. It's been nearly three decades since Carol says Trump attacked her in a department store dressing room and nearly four years since Trump first accused her of lying about the encounter. But today, for the first time, she got to take the witness stand under oath and told the jury, quote, being able to get my day in court finally is everything to me. Ilya Meritz was in the courtroom today. He covers the Trump legal cases for NPR, reports on democracy for ProPublica, and he joins me now. It's good to have you back at the table. Um, there's no cameras there. I was following this fairly wrapped, actually, as people were live tweeting it. Just what was it like for after all this time, she's on the stand telling her story? It's an incredibly important day as well, because this jury has been selected because they are people who don't follow the news closely. They didn't know all of the stuff that you just recounted, this four-year saga that we've that those of us who do follow the news closely are following with E. Jean Carroll first coming forward to tell her story, then the flood of litigation that has happened. So here's a jury of six men, three women. They're hearing it from her mouth for the first time. She describes bumping into Donald Trump as she's leaving Bergdorf Goodman. He's coming in. They recognize each other. They know each other casually. Uh, he says he needs her help buying a gift uh, for a woman friend. He doesn't say who it is. She agrees to help. And they have this fun, flirty kind of adventure moving through the store up and up and up until they get to the lingerie section on the sixth floor. Uh, and that's where she says Donald Trump locked her in a changing room 
and raped her. And she described uh, all of that with uh, a lot of dignity and composure. Um, and this was really her team's chance to tell that story for the first time and establish her as a credible, believable, sympathetic witness. And she keeps saying in that, you know, she's she's saying in this account of it that she she, rec- she knows who Donald Trump is. He knows her because she, at that point, I think, had a TV show, right? Yes. She was actually working for Roger Ailes, yes. right? Yeah, she yeah. Had- so she, she was on TV every afternoon at four, and then I think it repeated at 11, she said. It was, on a, it was actually a forerunner of MSNBC, as she explained it. That America's this- talking. That's right. This cable network. Her boss was Roger Ailes. And that turned out to be pretty significant because uh, Roger Ailes himself had a talk show at that time and was friends with Donald Trump. And tape was shown in court today of Roger Ailes interviewing Donald Trump sort of to show this kind of real chummy vibe between them. Uh, Carol said that one reason she didn't come forward with her story at the time was she was fearful she could be fired Uh, because Roger Ailes was friends with Trump. She said, I would never report something like this. Roger Ailes would have fired me. He was friends with Donald Trump. And they 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 played that. Well, exactly. Um, She talked. So she talks about the actual assault. Um, and, and, and I just, I found it just her painting this picture of this, you know, she's having this, which seems like she said it's like out of a rom-com or something. It's like out of a movie and it's this great story. And the whole time she's having this flirty interaction with the famous Donald Trump and she's thinking to herself, this is great. This is a good story. Right. And at one point, the lawyer says something like, were you flirting with him? She's like, yeah. And, and, and then it just turns. So the word flirting came up in, in these really interesting repeated ways throughout the proceeding because, you know, afterwards, she is so angry at herself for following him right. into the changing room. He didn't drag her in. He didn't point a gun at her head, as she describes it. She followed him in, and that's when he locked her in. And she felt for years afterwards, that flirting and being spontaneous and having fun with a man is what got her in trouble. And she says she has not had a romantic relationship since that day. She hasn't had sex since that day. So it had profound personal consequences for her. She has not had a romantic life since that day. Wow, that's really intense. Yeah. I I find something just, um, just remarkable about her choosing to tell this story when she did, um, and then just pursuing it to the ends of the earth. It's not like it was easy to get there today. Yeah, that was, well, one of the, she didn't break down very much, but uh, particularly in the afternoon as her attorneys tried to sort of, you know, ask her about the consequences for her and also somewhat to inoculate her against cross-examination, which will happen tomorrow, uh, she did tear up a bit and she talked about having my date in court is everything. And, um, you know, it's, 28 odd years later, it's going to be a difficult case just because there is no video. There's no forensic evidence. It's her word against his. Um, and, uh, and, and definitely she will be, everything she says will be picked apart. She doesn't even know exactly what year it was, much right. less what month. Right. So it's going to be a challenge. But to see a 79 year old woman in a very composed way tell her story and come forward uh, was unlike anything I've seen in court before. Um, she said, I lost my reputation. Nobody looked at me the same. Uh, oh my God, the force of hatred coming at me was staggering. This is when she came out with it and Donald Trump uh, called her a liar, right? He said it was a hoax and that she's a liar. Now, Trump and uh, his his son have continued to talk about the case. And today the judge had some stern words for uh, 
Joe Takapina, Donald Trump's lawyer. That's right. Uh, on two occasions, he warned the Trump legal team. In the morning, uh, we learned that Trump had posted to his social network, Trump Social, calling uh, her, saying that she was lying, calling this lawsuit a scam. Uh, and the judge said, uh, I believe uh, there'll be, uh, just said words to the effect of, please warn your client there could be a di- like very significant additional legal consequences if he continues in this vein then in the afternoon we come back and eric trump has posted to social media something along the same lines um and the and the the judge uh, lewis kaplan says you are sailing uh sailing into harm's way harm's way that's right sailing into harm's way thank you what is so striking about this is that earlier this month I was at the Trump arraignment uh, on, cr- on criminal charges. The judge in that case warns both legal teams, but we know he's warning Trump's legal team in particular to avoid words that could incite violence or civil unrest. Then yesterday, this judge has words that are almost the same. And again, right away, we hear from Trump on social media. His lawyers can't control him. And they more or less admitted that in court today. This is a, a, a judge of, of many years, a sort of very well-known uh, Judge Kaplan. Uh, says, if I were in your shoes talking to Trump's lawyer today, I'd be having a conversation with the client. There are some relevant United States statutes here, and somebody on your side ought to be thinking about them. Um, that sounds pretty serious. Seems like he's thinking of something beyond contempt, maybe obstruction. I'm not a lawyer. I don't want to say, yeah. but um, that he's going there that quickly, it feels significant. Merits. That was fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Appreciate Thank it. you. Silicon House Republicans promise to push the American economy over a cliff unless they can cut services millions of Americans rely on. Congresswoman Katie Porter joins me on what comes next after this. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Jen Psaki. Have you ever seen the House this dysfunctional? Rachel Maddow. If winning the election is his plan to stay out of prison, what happens in that election if and when he does not win it? Mondays, back to back. Talk about the stakes of this back and forth, given Trump's behavior. What do you make of the statement from Hamas? Why they're doing it? What, what do you think it means? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by the Rachel Maddow Show at 9 p.m. Eastern, Mondays on MSNBC. We have lifted the debt ceiling, so nobody could worry about whether the debt ceiling is going to get lifted. We did it. The Democrats have not. The president wants to make sure the debt ceiling is going to be lifted. Sign this bill. (laughs) All right. That was House Speaker Kevin McCarthy sounding a little cocky today after his bill to raise the nation's debt ceiling in exchange for massive spending cuts passed by just two votes, which, you know, a win's a win. Uh, It has zero chance in the Senate. It didn't stop the Republicans from cheering. Now, the bill whose spending cuts would be borne in part by tens of millions of Americans on food stamps and Medicaid to name just two big programs the GOP majority targeted. Congresswoman Katie Porter is a Democrat of California who serves on the Joint Economic Committee. She's also a 2024 Senate candidate and author of the new book, I Swear Politics is Messier Than My Minivan. She joins me now. Um, Congresswoman, you voted against this. I 
imagine. Uh, what do you think of it as a plan? Well, it's a terrible plan. Um, it's important for people to understand that the debt ceiling and our future spending are two totally different things. Raising the debt ceiling is about deciding to pay off the bills that we have already incurred. It's about past spending. And the budget negotiations about the future are about what we're going to do tomorrow. So think about it this way. It's like someone said, um, if you—this is what Kevin McCarthy is basically saying. He's saying, if you don't agree to live on half the food that you ate last year, we'll also stop paying your mortgage and you'll be foreclosed on. All you're going to wind up then is both hungry and homeless. And that's really what he's trying to do with this, is hijack our basic fiscal responsibilities in order to hold all Americans hostage to produce his draconian spending cuts. On those cuts, I mean, so correct me if I'm wrong, and I, I don't—I I may have lost a thread here a little in the weeds, but they don't actually— like they just give top lines, right? It's they don't actually spell out what all the cuts are. They're kind of they're, like these cuts have to happen, and they're either going to be like enormous across the board cuts, or if they're targeted, they're going to be doubly enormous at the targeted stuff like food stamps or Medicaid. Right. They're basically across the board cuts. And so we're going to see cuts to lots of things that I think ultimately Republicans would not have the political will to cut. So we're talking about cutting our aid to foreign countries, including places like Israel. We're talking about cutting programs for veterans. Um, we're talking about across the board everything except, of course, you know, the defense budget, they're going to talk about cutting. And so I think ultimately this kind of across the board strategy is is just a bluff to try to gain political leverage against um, Democrats and President Biden. The, the president, of course, has released uh, his budget, uh, and it's a very different vision. It would expand the child tax credit. It caps insulin at $35 per month. Uh, it would help states expand child care options. There was some executive action on the uh, care options as well, increased Pell Grants, uh, paid and family medical leave, a minimum tax on billionaires. I mean, that is likely not to happen either with Kevin McCarthy's house controlling things. How do you see the path forward between these <laughs> dueling visions? There's definitely going to have to be a negotiation here. Um, Republicans have control of the House, as you point out. So this is going to be different than last Congress, when President Biden was able to pass the budget that really reflected his full agenda. But what I'm going to do, and what I think people on both sides of the aisle in Congress, Republican or Democrat, should do, is look at each of the line items in the budget and ask ourselves, is this an investment of tax dollars that will return dividends to our economy and our country for years to come? So expanding the, um, the child tax credit does exactly that. It's an investment in our future workforce. It's money well spent. Investing in things like insulin um, makes it cheaper, ultimately, for health care because it reduces um, more higher health care costs caused by people who don't have insulin. Um, and so I think the goal here is to look at each expense. I think it's appropriate for Democrats and Republicans to take a lot of responsibility for every taxpayer dollar. But it's not to just come up with kind of this across-the-board political games and leverage. Okay, so there's a weird situation right now that goes the following way. The, the debt ceiling breach is a forcing mechanism to make a deal, right? And the GOP uses it as a kind of hostage situation, right? The economy's going to blow up unless you, you negotiate and you give us what we want. And until people start to freak out about it, the, 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 
It doesn't work as a forcing mechanism, but people tend to think the problem's going to get solved, so it's not happening. And there's a little fear that we're like sort of coasting towards oblivion because Kevin McCarthy can barely, he barely delivered this vote on a thing that's not an actual real bill. It's basically a messaging bill. And he could barely get a majority on that. Like his ability to, to actually de- deliver the votes when the time comes, are you worried about that, about actually breaching the thing? Well, I think that's where Democrats have the upper hand, which is that ultimately the only way McCarthy is probably going to get there um, to pass a budget that Biden will actually sign is if we come up with something that enjoys some bipartisan support. So very clear that Kevin McCarthy does not have control of his Congress. This is this is not Speaker Pelosi in which every vote is counted and double counted and triple counted. As with his own um, election as Speaker, it seems that Mr. McCarthy puts things on the floor and hopes for the best. Today, yeah. he got lucky. I'm not so sure he will next time. <laughs> I mean, I think he had the votes today. They, they, they climbed down on their ethanol. They, they upset the corn lobby. Uh, they, they upset the ethanol people with some ethanol cuts. And we all know that one of the most important things in America is welfare for corn, which we, is, a, is, a, is a big and important North Star for American policymaking. Um, I want to ask you a question about uh, your state Senate seat that you're running for. Diane Feinstein uh, is the current senator. She is uh, 89 years old, if I'm not mistaken, um, and uh, is currently ill and indisposed and can't uh, attend to her Senate duties. That happens, of course, to members of Congress all the time, illness uh, for whatever reason. But there's some concern, uh, given her age, that this may last for a long time and that uh, the state of California, with its tens of millions of people, should have two representatives in the Senate. Do you think Senator Feinstein should resign? Well, I think the way to think about this is, as you suggested, to understand that Senator Feinstein's situation and the problems and challenges that it poses are not really that different from the challenges that are posed when we have a senator who has a child and might be out for a couple months recovering. We just had Senator Fetterman getting um, health care that he needed. Um, and so I think the goal here is for Congress to modernize, to have a plan for what to do for short term when we have people who have health questions. We don't know what the long-term prognosis is for Senator Feinstein. Um, and I think that, you know, this whole rule that the Senate has, which is that they apparently can't replace people on committees without the entire Senate consenting, is just a terrible rule of procedure. Congresswoman Katie Porter of California, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you. That does it for All In. You can catch us every weeknight at 8 o'clock on MSNBC. Don't forget to like us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash Chris. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate.